everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 81. I'm your host, Sarah Head. And I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we're talking about mermaids and mummies, specifically the Fiji mermaid and the Peruvian mummies. What do these two creatures have in common? How is P.T. Barnum related? And what can be learned from the Peruvian mummy fraud? Get ready to think critically. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Rated trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am here today with my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? Uh, it's going It's going great. I, I vaguely remember a TV show back in the 80s where, where there were aliens were on Earth and they looked like human beings, but if you looked like behind one ear, there was a mark on every one of them, and they would they would identify each other by finding that mark. I'm in, I feel I'm in a similar position now, but I walk around and I have these little spit up stains on my shoulders from the baby, and nobody else notices those. But other people walking around with those spit up stains, you walk by and you kind of nod your head. Yeah, okay. I know, I know where you're coming from. Um, it's it's kind of like that. The mark of the, yes, exactly. The mark of the parent. Oh, God. That's the, the, uh, what was it in the uh, old horror movies? It was the mark of the pentagram. We have the mark of the parent. Yes. <laughs> well, puke stains. How's it going, I don't have Deb? the... I don't have those kids, but my other kids are back. I've got my uh, all my students I'm teaching again, and I've got lots of interns and lots of independent studies, some of which we're actually working on topics related to the sorts of things we talk about. Um, we'll talk about that another time, maybe. But, um, you know, hey, and and I am, since this will be out afterwards, and therefore you won't know where my house is to rob it, um, I am going to CryptidCon in a few days 
to um, learn with the cryptozoology curious and or believers in Kentucky. Um, and I'll be meeting friends of the show or actually guests on the show, um, Sharon Hill and Blake Smith. Sharon Hill of Doubtful News and 15 Credibility Street and Blake Smith of Monster Talk. And don't That's going to be, be a sh- good panel. So, well, we're not paneling. He's talking, but I'm sure we could always answer a question or two. Otherwise, we're going to hang out. It's in bourbon country. And, Fantastic. you know. I'm going to go to Mammoth Cave. Hopefully, I will not be abducted by the Hopkinsville goblins, and because um, that's where they live. Uh-huh. And um, where else we, would they live? Come don't on. don't be shocked if we uh, if you if you hear. I'm not. We don't have a plan plan, but don't be shocked if there's some sort of audio or other kind of product or two that comes out of this. We're we're just going. Awesome. We're just going because we're curious. But I, I have to assume we would we would do something with this. Mm-hmm. So we'll, well, when you've got three podcasting personalities all in one room, something's bound to happen. Kind of, sort of, especially in bourbon country. So, well, so today we have uh, an interesting, an interesting concept, I think that has spanned many of the decade. Um, the whole idea of creating fake remains and we're especially of, strange creatures and mm-hmm. we're going to start with a creature that many of you are probably familiar with which is the fiji mermaid and ken you want to give us a little introduction to that well yeah i mean the, the reason that i know a little bit about this is because the fiji mermaid is inextricably connected and associated with pt barnum who in spirit of full disclosure is like a favorite son of connecticut he probably is the most fa- most famous connecticutian certainly of the the 19th and 20th centuries we have a lot of famous people from Connecticut, most of whom are mayors and past governors who are doing time in prison, and I'm not exaggerating, and so they're kind of famous. Um, but you're, you're, you're like a little, you're like a little Illinois. Oh yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really proud, you know. And or Louisiana, where I went to grad school. So but here's the deal: we are a much smaller state with a smaller population. So per capita, I think we put you guys to shame. I really ah, do. But we, we can talk about this anyway. So PT Bar. The deal with P.T. Barnum is that everybody assumes they know what he's about. Oh, yeah, he's the humbug. He's the fake guy. He's the big circus impresario. And he is all those things, but he's a lot more than that. Um, Barnum, in fact, spent – it wasn't until he was like 60 years old and he lived to be about 80 that he got involved in circuses. Circuses was something he came to late in life uh, when he um, – he actually bought into an existing circus and then went around the country as the, the P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. Which is I, a believe, pretty- I believe there's a, like a big movie, like, and I think it's a musical coming out about him this year. Well, there was. There was really? a Broadway musical called Barnum. Well, this, well, the 2017 one is called The Great Showman. And oh, oh my God! Did you know mm, who's in it? It's, it's star. Um, it's starring Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Playing fact, Barnum. I, I know. I know the, the Kathy Kathy Marr is a friend of mine, a colleague, and just a fantastic person. She's the director of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is in a, a building that Barnum designed and funded. Although he didn't live long enough to see it finished, and I guess Hugh Jackman, his people have been talking to her about you know, what, what she feels should be added in the movie to make it more authentic, which is really pretty cool. Um, but like I said, Barnum, um, he was 60 by the time he got involved in circuses. Before that, he was a lot of things. He was the, he was a, a real estate tycoon, and he was a philanthropist, and he was a, a representative to the 
the, the state house of representatives of Connecticut. He was the mayor of Bridgeport. He was an inventor. He was a whole, whole bunch of stuff. And he was a showman. And his big thing was his American Museum, which he actually, it was Scudder's American Museum in Manhattan. He bought it out from this guy Scudder and it wasn't very successful. It became Barnum's American Museum. And it was museum and menagerie and theater and lecture hall. And it was a whole bunch of stuff. It was the perfect kind of Victorian uh, phenomenon um, right there in the, in the heart of Manhattan. If you have seen the movie Gangs of New York, at one, part, point, at one point, there's riots and all kinds of crazy shit. And in the background, you see elephants and giraffes running down the street. That's, that is supposed to represent the, 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 the museum burned to the ground in 1865. And in hmm. fact, wild animals, the menagerie, escaped from the museum and were you know, walking down Fifth Avenue and, and uh, down Broadway trying to escape the, the conflagration. Um, another thing about, about Barnum... Um, Barnum never said there's a sucker born every minute. Right. Uh, and that's kind of the typical thing. That's, that actually was a phrase that you can trace back in gambling circles to just about before Barnum was born. And if there's an association with that phrase with Barnum, it's, it is believed that David Hannum, who was one of the, the buyers of the Cardiff Giant, we've talked about Cardiff Giant on this right. podcast previously. So Hannum is part of the consortium of businessmen uh, who buys the Giant. And I think we, I think I told the story that when Petey Barnum tried to buy the giant, he could, and that would have been for the timing was right. That would have gone to the museum. It wasn't for a circus. It would have gone to the museum in New York. They turned him down. So this consortium of local businessmen bought a three quarter interest in it. Barnum's reaction, his response was, "Well, hell, hell with that. I'll build my own Cardiff giant, and I'll say it's the real thing." And the the irony, this hilarious story, is that. When Barnum Circus was in Manhattan, the Cardiff Giant was on the road in Manhattan, and Barnum's Giant outdrew his fake oh, yeah. of the fake outdrew yeah. the real fake. Uh, Mark Twain writes this, this short story, a ghost story that's all based on that. It's hilarious, and it's when apparently when David Hannum was confronted by reporters who thought this was hilarious, he said, "Well, how do you explain the fact that Barnum's fake is actually outdrawn uh. the real fake?" Hannum said. As well, you know, there's a sucker born every minute. So he's the one making fun of the people who are suckered in by Barnum. All of Barnum's Barnum's biographers, he has there are several of them, all really get exercised about this. They say PT that was not only did PT is there no evidence that PT Barnum ever said it, it would, would have been completely out of character. He viewed people, he viewed the folks who came to his his circus, who came to his sideshows, who came to his museum, as customers he was to entertain. Now, entertainment could mean humbug, it could mean fake, but he never thought that they were dumb or suckers. He, he never expressed that. He didn't see himself as predatory. No. I mean, one could argue in some cases he might have been, but he did not see that. He was right. also, he was an abolitionist. Um, what's the, uh, her name is Lucy Stone, was uh, a very important person in women's suffrage at, in the 19th century. And Barnum says he heard her speaking, I think in New York or Pennsylvania, was transfixed by this, and he uh, produced her, he brought her to Connecticut to talk to people about women's suffrage. He was a very strong supporter of that. And for his time, he was relatively non-abusive. I mean, one could argue that, that the use of animals in circus is, by definition, ritualized animal abuse, right? right. And it but, is largely ended in the United States. Right, right. Ringling Brothers just closed down, right? Yeah, and yeah. Barnum Barnum was 
compared to others of his time, was a lot better at treating his animals. Right. So, and anyway, so most of what I can say about the Fiji Mermaid comes from Barnum's biography, which of course is titled The Life of P.T. Barnum Written by Himself. And that's <laughs> the typical Barnum thing to do, right? And, and, and before you get in, the Fiji Mermaid, I believe, will be the third, not the only, not the third time we've mentioned him, but the third case we have examined that either he was responsible for or, as in the case of the Cardiff Giant, he became very involved with. He didn't create the right. Cardiff Giant, he's exploited it. So the Cardiff Giant Ishima, the Ishimaya hoax, yeah. right? Oh, uh, we recently talked about the Aztec children. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and now the Fiji mermaid. Maybe there's another we have forgotten, but I believe this is our third one. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the third one that we connected directly back to him. I know we've mentioned him several times on the show, but yes. how do you not? Yes, so. exactly. But but now Jeff Barnum would would rise to the occasion and say, "Well, well, sir." I really am not responsible for the Fiji mermaid. I only rented it for a while. And that's actually the case. Right. Um, but in Barnum's autobiography, he, he actually says, you know what, I'm kind of in a, in a confessional mood here, so I'm going to tell you everything that actually happened. Well, it begins with um, Moses Kimball. And Moses Kimball is kind of the Boston's version of Barnum. He's got, got a politician and a showman. And like Barnum, he bought an already existing museum, the New England Museum. Now, when we say museum, don't think of what we what you know what we have today as museums. These right. are different. These are these are these. It's more like Ripley's, believe it or not, with museum stuff, but also with entertainment, with theater. So it's a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of stuff. And Moses Kimball um, was had had. The New England Museum, and he opened up a Boston Museum. He opened up a museum in Lowell, Massachusetts. He was he. Was, was a museum tycoon, and his displays, his uh, exhibits were similar to Barnum's in that it was just a, a mess of stuff, some of which was legit and some of which wasn't. Barnum says that Moses Kimball came to him in 18... Uh, Barnum buys Scudder's Museum in 1841, and he's going to completely renovate it. 1842, Kimball shows up in New York with this box, and he tells Barnum, listen, I've had this for a while. I'm not making any money off of it. Uh, I, I respect your ability to sell anything to everybody. What can we do with this? And it is a, Barnum says, he opens it up, and it's this kind of disgusting, dark figure that's half fish and half what appears to be monkey. Kimball gives him a backstory. The backstory is, uh, in 1817, a British sailor uh, found this in a market in Calcutta. It's, it's always Calcutta, right? Found in the Calcutta, he he knew that this was going to be worth a lot of money, and that he could set his family up for life if he only could buy this. The the, the seller wanted six thousand uh, dollars. If you're an economist out there, six thousand dollars in 1817, I'm sure converted to modern money. That's an extraordinary amount of money. It's a huge amount of money. Huge amount of money. Yeah. But according to the again, this is this is the story. Understand. Barnum is telling us this, that Moses Kimball told him this, that a sailor told him this. So the validity of any of this is, is certainly up for grabs. Um, I don't know what you're talking sailor, about. That sounds like a totally legit chain of command. Pretty legit, right? Well, the, the, here's the deal. The sailor says, the sailor that says, I went back to the boat. I collect, I actually took money from the, 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 the storehouse of the boat, took money from my boss, the guy, I, he's supposed to be the captain. I went and bought this for $6,000. I left the first mate in charge. I went back to England so I could hide this thing away. 
and then told my boss, listen, I borrowed $6,000. I will work it off. Goes back to work, tells his family, this is going to be our fortune. Protect it. Apparently, he dies. The family <laughs> looks at this disgusting thing and says, oh, we don't want it. They try to sell it. Moses Kimball comes into, uh, just finds out about it and buys it for, you know, pennies on the dollar. But he can't make any money off of it, so he give, he brings it to, to Barnum. Barnum's first reaction is, to, he tells Moses Kimball, I don't know if this is legit or not, I have to show it to my naturalist. That's exactly, that's what he <laughs> says in his book. Nice. Um, so, and then Barnum says, I showed it to my naturalist. And, I, and my, here's what my naturalist says. My naturalist says, I don't see any way anybody could have faked this. Um, the fish, I've never seen a fish like that. The monkey, I've never seen a monkey like that. So I, I can't explain how, that it's a fake. But it's fake. And Barnum says, well, you just said you have no evidence it's fake. Why do you say it's a fake? And Barnum says, his naturalist says, because, sir, I do not believe in mermaids. Barnum took that and said, well, you know, that's, I'm going to run with, my naturalist says, he can't figure out how it was done, yeah. and I'm going to run with that. And the fact that my naturalist brought up this top, this, it wasn't called the Fiji mermaid. It was just this chimera, this weird amalgam of two completely different kinds of animals. Um, interestingly, Moses Kimball, when he gets this back in his advertising, he compares the Fiji mermaid to the duck-billed platypus. <laughs> In other words, an animal, which is a real animal, but it seems, wow, is it a duck? Is it a mammal? What the hell is that? So he understands, wow, this, obviously these are two very different critters, but there's a ductal platypus. Why not a Fiji mermaid? Why not a part monkey, part fish? In any event, so Barnum decides to go with that. He says, I'm going to call this a mermaid. Where should we put it? Well, let's put it in Fiji. But, you know, again, um, Air, uh, middle of the Pacific, it's it's exotic. It's an exotic locale. Very, very few people have been there, so we'll, we'll say it's the Fiji mermaid. Um, Kimball uh, um, Kimball tells tells Barnum that the sailor who bought it told that the family told him that it was Japanese fishermen who brought it up in their nets. How it got to Japan, to Calcutta, is 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 unclear. So Barnum, then, if you read. Now, Barnum's description of what he does to sell this. And as we might talk about, that's not terribly far off from the truth. Exactly. Yeah, and even we'll get Barnum, that. even Barnum, and I'll let you hit that, even Barnum later on in the autobiography, he has this extended, extensive quote where he says, well, it, it does, this is the kind of thing that people in Japan actually weren't doing at the time. We can talk more about that in a little bit. So anyway, what Barnum does next, it's really quite beautiful in a sense. It's it's an it's the uh, it's 1842 and his ability to manipulate the media and in this case we're talking about the press and to manipulate public opinion is absolutely stunning. The first thing he does is he gets his buddy Levi Lyman. Levi Lyman gets the job of pretending to be Dr. J. Griffin. Dr. J. Griffin is a made-up person, <laughs> not a real person. And, you know, but here's the deal. We have seen this before. Uh -huh. I was going to say, it's not the first time he's done it. But, but, but it's not just him. It's even in more recent archaeological oh, yes. fakes. They just make make up the names. So so Lyman, <laughs> Levi Lyman, becomes Dr. Griffin. Barnum knows a guy with an upper-class English accent uh -huh. is goes unquestioned in America. So he becomes, he's a British 
man of science, and he's a representative of the Lyceum of Natural History in London. I don't even know if that's a real place. This is, it might be now. I don't think it's a real place. I recognize I recognize those words. I couldn't put it together. I will just say there there are of course no uh, people involved in <clears throat> alternative archaeology today who get more credibility because they have unusual or interesting <laughs> foreign accents, British no accents, no or anything else. There's there's no one whose claims of ancient global civilizations and rely on an accent of any sort. But anyway. No, no one might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's a good plan. So, so, so now he is Dr. He's Dr. Griffin. He is here with this Fiji mermaid because the folks in London want the people of America to be aware of this spectacular, amazing discovery. Now, Barnum says in the autobiography, says, I was a little bit leery about using Levi because he had used him before. Uh, yeah. Folks listening to this, folks listening to this are probably aware of the fact that Barnum made a big deal about his discovery of a 161-year-old ex-slave, Joyce Heth, who oh, yeah. was the nursemaid of George Washington. Uh, yeah. Levi Lyman, in another role, was the, 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 the manager of Joyce Heth. He is, in an, again, in a, not playing Dr. Griffin, playing somebody else. He brought, he is supposed to be the one who discovered her, um, this ancient African-American woman who used to be a slave and, and was able to prove that she was George Washington's nursemaid. And she was put in the sideshow. She was exhibited first, of course, in the museum. Um, as well, it's, it's, exhibit. it's like her. American Horror Show. They play different roles every year. Nobody cares. It's just the same people. I guess. But Barnum was, was concerned somebody would see that. But apparently he dressed differently. There was makeup involved. There was the accent. Nobody put the two things together. Well, Glasses, he's Superman without. It's all good. Well, there's exactly. also, I mean, you're, we're talking about a time when, I mean, did they even have radio? I mean, no, there was no way no, for no. hundreds of eyes to be on him at any one point. Right. So it was probably not, pretty there's, easy. There's not even a lot of photography. There is photography, right, exactly. but it's not common. Well, it's not, not easy. That, so. Before the Civil War. Next, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, so so he's, he's presented to the media as this representative from London. Then Barnum does... What Barnum, is do, what Barnum does is to drum up interest. He doesn't, bottom line, he, he says, he knows this thing is a fake. But for him, it doesn't make any difference. This is about selling tickets to his museum. So the next thing that Barnum, the, uh, newspapers in New York begin getting letters from southern states. I mean, we know of three, three uh, at least three, that talk about, my goodness, we have been in the company of Dr. J. Griffin, who is, and these are all people of high, um, high economic, political, social standing. We have been in the, in the presence of J. Griffin, who has shown us this amazing thing, this amazing mermaid, and where you people in New York are so lucky that it's coming to the Barnum Museum. And they come from one comes from Alabama, one comes from South Carolina, one comes from Washington D.C., and they all are differently worded. They're from different places. But the, the, uh, the fiction here is that this thing is going on this private tour through the southern states, again, to get merely because the people in London want to share this with the folks of the United States. Barnum, in his autobiography, said, well, I wrote all of those letters and I sent them, <laughs> I sent them to friends of mine in those states and I gave them the high sign when they should send them to different newspapers in New York. 
And he did that because he didn't... If they, they all came from New York, maybe it would have been, there would have been a question. If they all were written in the same tone, there would have been questions. If they all came from the same city, there would have been questions. So he felt, in this way, he was covering his ass. Nobody would put it together with him. But then the, the newspapers in New York start writing these articles, publishing these, these pieces, on the basis of these testimonials provided by these, these not, not anonymous, but these named people in the South, who, in fact, are all P.T. Barnum. <laughs> then... Barnum puts Griffin in a hotel, fancy hotel in Philadelphia, with the Fiji mermaid. He is he's, he's at the hotel and he tells people, well, I have this spectacular thing I'm going to be bringing to New York. Uh, we're not, they're not ready for me yet. I don't want to go there. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, to um, uh, ruin the surprise for people. And, of course, he starts, he actually tells people in Philadelphia, well, I'm really not supposed to show this to anyone, but would you like to come up to my hotel room and see the Fiji mermaid? And among the people he invites up, he invites up are oh well editors of newspapers, who then go back and write these these laudatory articles about this is this is the best this is the most important thing ever found. It clearly is a, a, a some strange animal, part fish, part human. It is a mermaid. It's the it's the story of mermaids all all in one in one object in one artifact uh, proves that story. Um, those articles are printed. I'm, the odds are these editors knew that this was bullshit, but it sold newspapers to yeah. say, hey, we've seen this mermaid. This is spectacular. Because their articles are then picked up by the newspapers in New York. So there is a building frenzy. Barnum's not done. When the mermaid arrives in New York, Barnum announces that there is going to be a one week limited engagement where you can have a personal experience with the Fiji mermaid, limited number of tickets. After that week, it will go on display for a month in the American Museum, but there's going to be big crowds and you won't have the kind of personal experience you might want to have. Um, you know, you know, when I'm reading this and I'm thinking Steve Jobs at uh -huh. Apple, mm -hmm. how they, they build up this, people become literally frenzied about the possibility of some new completely game-changing piece of technology and being and the that, first adopter and and the thing too is and i don't know if this is true but you read fairly frequently of how maybe apple intentionally doesn't make a they, they make fewer than they know the demand is going to be because that makes the demand even stronger they keep the supply under what the demand is going to be because then people are going to go nuts mm. demanding that they make more of them That's i can kind of I can think of other products I'm not going to name that I know do that. Oh uh, yeah, it's a it's a marketing tactic. I mean that's that's been around forever. Well, Barnum, but, Barnum 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 was brilliant at that. Barnum and was so, an early so what adapter. Is, yeah, yeah, people people wanted to be the first to see it. They wanted to be able to say, "Oh, you're seeing it at the museum." Well, I saw it already in a much smaller crowd. Um, Barnum starts handing out these um, posters, these bills, these. Um, they cost. He hands out ten thousand. He has newspaper boys selling them for a penny. Barnum says they cost him two cents each, so he's taking a loss on it. They are detailed stories about. He repeats Kimball's story, and there are engravings of mermaids in this. The engravings in the mermaids look nothing at all like the Fiji mermaid. The Fiji mermaid is this wizened, dark, and kind of horrible-looking thing. Because, in fact, it's part fish and part monkey. In the, the, the engravings he includes are 
bare-breasted women with long flowing hair and the, the lower bodies of fish. And they are on rocks and they're, you know, waving to sailors. And oh, yeah. Using the, away with this? It's the, it's the old tactic this? of using sex to sell. It's, um, I, I do not doubt that that's, there's some of that. And probably the kinds of images that he was including, you couldn't include in anything other than, well, this is science. These are this, these are not we're not these are not naked women. These are mermaids in their natural habitat. <laughs> Barnum admits that every once in a while somebody said, yeah, "That thing doesn't look anything like these these uh, these posters you've developed." He had an 18 foot banner that he wanted to set across the street, a gigantic painting again of a bare-breasted naked mermaid, and that other people in the museum who were in on the thing said, no, you know, that's just not going to fly. You can't do that. People are just going to get <laughs> righteously pissed off. And so Barnum actually said, you know, I, to, to keep them on uh, on my side, I didn't post that. Um, I didn't put the, 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 uh, the poster up, the, the large well, banner. Can, now, can we go to break yeah. real quick? And when we come back, oh, yeah, can yeah. we hear no, the rest of the story? Good morning. All right, cool. So we're going to go to break real quick, and when we come back, we're going to finish our introductory story to our fascinating Fiji mermaid. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink 3 to 5 liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code pseudoarchaeology at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code pseudoarchaeology at liquidiv.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we are back, and we are still talking about the Fiji mermaid. And Ken, I know I interrupted you, but can you can you tell us the rest of the story? Yeah, I mean the, the rest of the story is, is really pretty brief. Um, so so it's it's exhibited for four weeks. Barnum pays Kimball twelve dollars and fifty cents to lease this thing per week. Um, oh, that's not and, too bad. Yeah, I was gonna say bad. money that, just sounds so weird from the past. You know, twelve dollars and fifty right? cents, and you're like, that's probably the equivalent of like a couple hundred dollars nowadays. But, but, when, when is this? This is 1842. All right, I'll see what I can do while you go on. <laughs> right. So, 
but but no, actually, what, if you get a website where you can convert what money is, I've got more more numbers for you because Barnum Barnum is really good at keeping track of every penny that comes in and comes out, and he keeps a record of it. He's a virtual accountant, and here's what Barnum actually provides in his in the autobiography for how well he did. Twelve fifty, twelve fifty a week is three hundred and fifteen dollars. All right, that's, a, that's a, now. How about this? How about twelve hundred dollars? It's going to be about twelve hundred dollars back then. Hold on, it's going to be about thirty thousand dollars. Right. Uh, yeah, about thirty thousand dollars. All right, there's one more number for you. Barnum says that in the four weeks leading up to the uh, the, the the appearance of the mummy at, at the museum, so this is a total, so a month's worth of, of receipts. All right. He, he brought in twelve hundred dollars. So you're so saying a month thirty thousand dollars a month, yes. Right. The four weeks during which he exhibited the mermaid, three thousand three hundred dollars. All right. So that's gonna be about triple. So yeah, about uh, eighty three thousand bucks. That is some serious in, in twenty sixteen dollars. Twenty sixteen dollars. That's, that's wow. serious coin. So um, and then Barnum says, listen, obviously this worked. Obviously, this brought people into the museum. And I've got a quote for Barnum in just a little bit where Barnum justifies this. Barnum, Barnum says, hey, look, folks, my goal wasn't to fool people. My goal wasn't to humbug people. My goal was to entertain. And if it took, look at, look at what this mermaid did. When you came to the museum, he made a big issue about this. There was no extra fee to see the mermaid. You paid your entrance fee in the front, and the mermaid was one of the exhibits that, were, that was open to you. So that if people, if this many more people, two and a half times, three times more people showed up, that's three times more people also seeing a beluga whale that he had in a tank there, an, a live elephant, a live giraffe, um, artifact from Africa, artifacts from Mexico. So his justification is this is what it takes to get people in. This works. And you know what? As long as they're here, they actually are going to be educated. And that Maybe. sounds a lot like what people on, say, Animal Planet and Discovery would say about their mermaid show. I think so. I think yeah. so. I also so just put my, my salary. I just put my salary into the inflation calculator. It's really disappointing in 1842. <laughs> Aww. Anyway, don't, don't tell us. And yes. After the four weeks, the mummy goes back. It goes on tour. Ends up back in Boston at the Moses Moses Kimball's um, exhibit. And I will. Sh- I, I will. I'll, send this to you sarah maybe we can we can post this but the this is interesting and it actually leads us into the nazca story so in the this long broadside that moses kimball puts up now he's of course he's going to take advantage of the fact that this thing has been incredibly successful down in new york and so he's got part of the broadside in big bold letters egyptian mummies and these are all the things you're going to see in his museum for by the way 25 cents what is 25 cents in your inflation calculator? I'll see what I can do. <laughs> All right. So Egyptian mummies and ancient sarcophagi, 3,000 years old, and an entire family of Peruvian mummies. The duck-billed <laughs> A whole platypus, family? The connecting link. Yes, a Peruvian mummy. A family of Peruvian mummies. <laughs> a, the connecting link. The platypus the connecting link between the bird and beast, being evidently half each. And the curious half-fish, half-human Fiji mermaid, which was exhibited in most of the principal cities of America in the years 1840, 41, and 42, to the wonder and astonishment of thousands of naturalists and other scientific persons, 
whose previous doubts of the existence of such an astonishing creation were entirely removed. None of that is true. I mean, I understand, well, yeah, it was in New York, but thousands of naturalists saw this and said, oh, yeah, it's definitely yeah. true. No, these guys all said, no, this is, this is crap. In fact, somebody, there was a, a bunch of medical students who, for a lark, when this was before it was in the museum, it was uh, being exhibited in the, the, you know, somewhere in Times Square, I think it was, you know, this private, this, this, this um, personal, up close and personal uh, experience you have with the mummy, actually took the, there was a glass globe over it, so Victorian, they actually, when nobody was looking, took the top off of it and put a cigar huh. in the mummy's mouth, put it back on, and then when, when Dr. Griffin returned to lecture, one of them asked, when, 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 when they found the mummy, was he smoking a cigar? And Griffin looked, and, he's, and he was, like, mortified and very angry. But so people were, and Barnum was right in a way, people were entertained by this. It, one of, uh, in a letter that Barnum wrote after this, this whole thing, he says very clearly what is, he, he presents his rationale, which is exactly as Jeb has, has pointed out, for the, the rationale for his shows on the Animal Planet, History Channel, whatever, as a, this is him, this is Barnum, as a general thing, I have not duped the world, nor attempted to do so. I have generally given people the worth of their money twice told. The mermaid, woolly horse, plowing elephant were merely used by me in advertising to attract attention. Yeah. So he's so humble. saying, hey, listen, he's so folks, humble. this is, well, you know, you know, he was mayor of Bridgeport, for God's sake. That, that <laughs> puts you on a, a pretty high pedestal. Wait a minute. He's, he's one of the mayors of Bridgeport who never did time in prison. And that puts him in a very, very – So a select category. club. A select club. A very select club, yeah. yeah. Those those so, kid, those college students, that, those medical students that were paying to, to do that, they were paying about six bucks a pop. So that's – you wow. know, That's not chump change. That's, that's, no, that's, no, lunch. No. that's lunch. That's right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with everything else, cost of living is so different. Six dollars back then. There's well, so, no, six dollars. a lot of money. Six, six bucks today. Yeah, yeah 25 right. cents. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of money. Um, and so I think that in the end – Bar again, bottom, Barnum's bottom line was oh, real, not real. What's the difference? Of course, it's a fake, but it entertains. It brings people. It gets people through the doors. <sighs> and look at all of the education they're going to get in my museum. Uh -huh. As a person, as a as you know, as a person who lives in Connecticut, who's good friends with the director of the Barnum Museum, um, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> By the way, the uh, uh, Barnum. Um, the, the big museum in New York burned to the ground, and Barnum, soon thereafter, that was like 1865, 1870, 1871 is when he gets involved with the circus, which is kind of just a, a, a traveling version of his right. American museum. Right. And and then he's he's doing political stuff. It, it, it's towards the end of his life that he present, he gives – this is in the eight, late 1880s. Um, he dies in 1891. So it's late 1880s, early 90s. He he uh, gives a bequest of a hundred thousand dollars to build a building in Bridgeport, where which is his becomes his home, which will both house some of his exhibit. It's a, it's a much smaller building, so some of the exhibit it will also house the Bridgeport Historical Society, and the upstairs rooms will be rented out to. To, uh, to, to companies, and hopefully their rent will pay the freight of, of having this museum open to the public. That didn't work. Um, it, it, it shut down for a while. The town of Bridgeport, the city of Bridgeport took it over. They used the building. It's a gorgeous building, by the way, as kind of an adjunct to this, the, the, or an annex to the, um, the town hall. And it's only 
only in the 1960s that the people say, you know what, this Barnum is one of the most famous people in Connecticut. We should be able to afford to put together a museum focused on his life, focused on the history of Bridgeport. They do so. Um, Kathy arrives, I don't know when she arrives on the scene in the 80s or 90s. And, you know, we never, we very rarely get tornadoes in Connecticut. In 2010, a tornado hit the state. It hit Bridgeport. And what did it hit? Ground zero? It hit the Barnum Museum. Mm. And it has been closed ever since. It is, and you know what happens when a building is, is damaged and they have to come in. If they want, if you want to refurbish it, you have to bring it up to not 1891 code. The building was, Barnum dies in 1891. The building is completed in 1893. So he doesn't look to see that. But when you're going to refurbish a building in 2010, it has to, you have to bring it up to the 21st century code, which is enormously expensive. There's a big dome, beautiful brick, red brick building, and the dome actually turned. The, the tornado actually turned the dome. And so that's dangerous. And of course, a, a gigantic bank built their, this big white beast of a structure kind of all around it. They actually wanted to first, they wanted to tear down the building and historic preservationists um, objected to that. Then they wanted to paint the entire thing like white because that's the color of their bank building. And it's this gorgeous red brick. That too, um, they decided wasn't the best idea. And for seven years now, Kathy has been working grants and working any one of a number of possible financial um, resources to try to get it opened opened again. There is a museum. There is a bar. The Barnum Museum now in kind of the part of the bank building is open, um, but the, the main structure is not um, – it, it doesn't have a certificate of occupancy. So of all the things in Bridgeport, uh, Bridgeport is, is unfortunately the butt of a lot of jokes in Connecticut. It is a very poor town, um, a lot of crime, and uh, and – the one gorgeous, really beautiful historical building in the town was the Barnum, and it was the one that got hit. Of course, of right. course. Right. Barnum All right. had this, this spectacular yes. bu- uh, house that he built that was kind of um, uh, Southwest Asian looking, like a lot of, of uh, uh, turrets and things, and that burned down as well. Um, before fire codes, before you know sprinkler systems, a lot of these structures that were made basically wood in the interior burned. Oh, you had so, a question, Jeb. I did, and you were talking about the material, and you're talking about the archaeological, and I have been champing at the bit to ask a question I don't entirely understand. What the hell is the damn Fiji mermaid <laughs> made of? What is this now, thing? It's, it's, now, understand, we would could answer that question today much better if we knew where the damn Fiji mermaid was. Oh, now, do we right. no longer have it? So what do we? Yeah. So what evidence problem. do we? What evidence do we have? I mean, because apparently everything. I'm not saying he's cursed, but you're telling me everything he touches eventually like destroy is destroyed. <laughs> well, uh, well, no, you're saying he's some cursed. Some of that, right? Well, maybe. Um, the deal is, what we have is his naturalist, and uh, um, I actually asked Kathy today. It's Labor Day. Do we know the name of this naturalist? I mean, who is this guy? What is his background? And she says, "Damn it, I don't remember his name, but I'll get it to you tomorrow." So that when we post the notes for this. If Kathy could come up, Kathy Marr, the director of the museum, if she can come up with the name and get a little bit of background on him, I will be more than happy to share it. We'll um, see what he, we can do. He says, well, it's a fish and it's a monkey. And it is, you know, very cleverly, ingeniously sewn together. But the fact of the matter is we really don't have a, a, 
a, a detailed forensic analysis by a biological anthropologist or by a biologist or a primatologist or, for that matter, an ichthyologist as to what exactly the hell it was. There certainly were scales. The bottom of that, that the mermaid is fish. The top had hair. The, 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 the overall look of it is, well, it's simian. And I've heard people say, well, maybe it's a baboon. It, well, the pictures I've seen, the pictures, the um, engravings don't look baboon to me. And either it, it, it may have burned up in a fire in Boston. It may have been destroyed it, conceivably um, in, it, while it was being, while it was being uh, toured around the country. Um, there are any one of a number. It's, it gets to be like the Carter Giant. There are a bunch of people who say, no, we've got it. But those all are fakes of the fake. The one exception to that is, um, and Kathy again is, is skeptical, but maybe is that the Harvard Harvard Peabody has a Fiji mermaid in their collection, and some people, although it doesn't look exactly like the the one that Barnum is displaying, remember those are engravings, those are woodcuts. So maybe maybe in fact the the one at Harvard is yeah. the real deal. And I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. One of the uh, best pictures, there's two pictures of it. One is on the the site, which has a lot of information on this, the uh, hoaxes.org, the Museum yes. of Hoaxes. They have a very long and useful entry, which Wikipedia basically just pulls a lot from sure. on, on this. And they have a picture of it. There's one other picture from uh, the Boston Globe that's actually a much better picture. It clearly has things. There are things, <laughs> things. in it. Okay, <laughs> but right. good luck. So my understanding. So we there are two shows that have actually been on, two episodes of the show Monster Talk again. We've done a crossover with them. Um, right. One they did on Carnival Gaffs, and they used that to talk about the the Minnesota Iceman. The right. other one was actually on Mermaids, and they talked about the the Discovery Show or Animal Planet Show. It's the same, uh, but they talked a lot about this actually. And my understanding was is that there is some research, although not everybody agrees entirely, that this comes from a Japanese artistic tradition. Yes. Yeah. And as, as I said, Barnum actually mentions that in his autobiography that, you know, somebody tracked this down. And it sounds like there are Japanese artists who are doing this for not not to sell to people, not to make a ton of money, but that once they realized these these crazy Europeans will pay right. a lot of money for this. They began cranking out these chimeras. These, so yeah. what's, these, these, what's this art mm-hmm. style that were that could possibly they, be attributed to it, and what's the purpose of it? I would have to go back and look more closely, but my understanding is that some of these chimeras were actually used as as and it's not because we don't know. Like they actually would have been in Shinto rituals where there are like in. in cultures all over the world there are monstrous beings there are beings that are considered sacred that have elements that include humans include animals good parts of one animal parts of another and that this was in essence while animal parts were used it's not my understanding is it's not as simple as i take a fish i take a monkey i have a monkey fish it would be that you use bits here and there but then you also carve other parts out of other materials whether Mm -hmm. paper mache or wood or something else to create your final creature. And if you look at the Peabody one, the ribs look, I mean, I, 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 I haven't studied it, but they look, and uh, there's several other ones like this, um, more constructed. They do not look like the ribs that fit right. the, the monkey, 
but that the skull does appear to be a mammalian skull, whether a monkey or hmm. not. Kind of looks like a monkey, but I don't know it. So it's it's a creative form. It's basically creative taxidermy, and you see artists who make often very Victorian themed, but yes. creative taxidermy today. Oh yeah, um, all kinds into of this. So the argument here is, and and several people have talked about this. Again, they had as the guest uh, uh, Paolo Viscardi, and he talked about this on on Monster Talk. Uh, a lot of these were being made initially as representations of non-human entities in mm -hmm. Japanese in pre-1850 Japanese worldview. Um, but then European sailors ran into them and they're like, that's a mermaid. Right. And yeah. it's like, I'll sell you one. Sure. Right. Sure, yeah. whatever, man. Just hand me those and, and, and there's an older and there's also an older tradition of that um in I I think it's older in in European tradition, the the Jenny Hanover, which was the same sort of thing where things like skates and rays would be somewhat modified. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. To look more human, to have a more human face. And you still sometimes see people freak out about this. My dad had like, one of those. You know, it was like a freeze-dried yeah. manta ray, but they had adjusted the face because uh, the yep. faces are underneath. And it was right. cool right. but creepy. And I believe my mom got rid of it in like one of the first garage sales we had when we moved back to uh, back to Indiana. But so I would argue that this is kind of a syncretism that you've mm -hmm. got a tr tradition of this with sailors. And remember, while we think of mermaids as fi fictional, um, uh, mermaids their history goes back. It appears their history goes back to depictions. I mean, first of all, there are stories of fairy-like creatures in the sea, selkies, mermaids, etc. They're very similar to fairy stories on land in many mm -hmm. ways. Um, but the high the high time of mermaid stories one. They're primarily associated um, with the area around Scotland. And second, again, like fairies. And secondly, uh, their big sort of high time is the early modern period. It's not the medieval period, though there are plenty of images of sirens. So it's not like it starts then. Right. But you get tons of what we would consider sort of cryptozoological reports of mermaids from about 1500 to about 1820. And then you do hear of some after that. But they, to some degree, start really disappearing. But there is a real interest, and part of it is there's a European idea that creatures on land have uh, counterparts in the water. Mm -hmm. So that you will have uh, all kinds of things, including people. Uh, and then as we start to get more interested in human diversity, but it's still pre-scientific, there gets to be more interest in mermaids, and they're seen less as supernatural, but very real. As, as, you know, as quite real. And that starts to fall apart and they become sort of pop culture icons, sort of like the vampire does mm -hmm. in the 19th century. Um, and so this is in the highlight of that where the idea of a mermaid was not entirely biologically ridiculous mm -hmm. to customers coming from Europe or America. And at the same time, you have people that are seeing this, these, those sort of prototypes as also part of worldview. So I think it's kind of a syncretism uh, and then, of course, but at the same time, there is also the I can just sell this and make money. I don't need to buy. I don't need to believe in it. <laughs> right. So that's my understanding. In the background, I will admit this is not something I have full expertise on, but that is my 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 general understanding. I've seen a few. I have seen, and I am not going to post pictures because I think it is entirely against the ethos of these places. But I have seen uh, one in um, the Museum of the Weird in. Austin, Texas, but that one 
I will say looked less impressive. That's also where I saw the Minnesota Iceman. Um, I saw some that were to me more impressive, and you might be like, "What does that mean?" I'm like, "You have to see them for yourself. You have to pay your <laughs> your, your your two bits or two bits. six bucks. I forgot how it is." Um, and uh, saw them in um, the uh, the UCM Museum, the UCM Museum. Okay. Better said as UCM. Museum, also known as the Abita Mystery House in Abita Springs, Louisiana. I went there to see a footprint of the Honey Island Swamp Monster, a sort of famous... Of, of course you did. Of course yes. I did. Which is usually considered a hoax even by a lot of cryptozoologists, although not all. Why are all the um, cool museums down south, man? I can't tell you. Well, I mean, we're talking Talking about that, they you know they we, we the best Fiji mermaid apparently is the one at Harvard. So uh, not all of them. That's true. But uh, but uh, um, I did see those. They had two there, and they are and I showed them to you. But everybody else have to go see them. Um, well, you can find them online. But they are actually quite impressive, and I suspect they are built in a way somewhat similar to the original. A little bit of sculpture, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, and I think now, I think also there's there's you know how um, there's this tradition among scientists saying well you know maybe maybe this is just a misinterpretation of something so the Star of Bethlehem but maybe that was a supernova right and isn't right. there now a tradition of well maybe what sailors were seeing was actually fill in the blank dolphins yeah some other that's a, exactly, yeah, exactly. That is an so, that is an old idea, and I have seen legitimate defenses of it with um with uh the uh, the effect of of, of um hallucination not hallucination but uh um what do you call it? oasis effects like the, the oh all right yeah like like temperature in water but you know what that's one of these things that skeptics they will sometimes have to find a materialist reason for every right. single yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out that also studying how the human mind works both psychologically and culturally has its values as well. Right. Um, you know, right, man, you have yeah. to be at sea for a hell of a long time to see a dolphin and go, that looks like a woman who's naked from the waist up. I'll, I'll just uh, tell you, I'll just tell you this. Or something. I'll just tell you this, Ken, I, I've not done a lot of, I've not done any underwater archeology, span but, as somebody who works in, in – who's done a lot of colonial archaeology, you read a lot about sort of early modern maritime archaeology and the material record. They were heard up for a lot of things. I'm just saying. Um, and, <laughs> All right. We'll leave it at that, Jim. Yeah, well, pretty much. All right. So we've talked about the Fiji mummy and, I mean, it's impossible right. to tell what it's made out of completely. But we have a concept of how the mummy oh, was yeah. put together yeah, and all absolutely. that. And that kind of feeds into what the other object we wanted to talk about today, uh -huh. uh, which is the Nazca mummy. Um, and we're going to hit on – There's a lot of them. Right, right. The, the, the fake mummies though. Yes. Right. Well, we'll uh, talk about both. that. Yeah. Well, we can talk about the yeah. real mummies too. But – we yeah. are going to go to break real quick, and when we come back, we're going to start digging into what the Nazca mummies are and how they kind of relate to the Fiji mummy or mermaid. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. And we are back and we're going to move from talking about the Fiji mermaid. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen to the, the Nazca mummies. And Jeb, you were saying there's more than one. Well, so uh, if you are familiar with this, first of all, I give um, I think I talked actually on on 15 Credibility Street with Sharon Hill for probably about 50 minutes. So we went into more detail. I think I also retold the story, which we've told here and we may tell again a little of the Roswell slides, which we covered on our Roswell episode, Excavating Roswell. But um, last fall, you may recall that like coast to coast and other sort of fringy places and even some not so fringy places, um, they showed off a giant alien claw. You may remember this. Mm -hmm. And it looked for all the world like it was a bunch of sticks, although it turns out it's probably not a bunch of sticks. It appears to be a bunch of phalanges, a bunch of finger bones. Right. Um, Which are kind of like sticks, only bones. Right. This seems to be from the same source. So this gets very complicated. But basically, earlier this year, you started to see – and it made a touch of like main – not mainstream news like Washington Post or whatever, but like the Daily Mail uh, and the Sun and other tabloids. And even there – it was never qualified as more than could it be? I mean, they never they never even got past that. Um, and one of the reasons that, that may be why is some of the people involved have been involved in in things that fell apart as hoaxes. Most famously, and I did talk about this on Sharon's show, Jaime Masson, the uh, Mexican reporter turned uh, UFO personality, TV person. Um, he was sort of one of the major people involved. We talked about on the Roswell show with the Roswell slides where pictures wow. of what turned out to be um, the remains of an indigenous American uh, child uh, that had been dug up in 1898 Mesa Verde were being passed off as or mistaken, according to some people, uh, as uh, an alien from the Roswell crash, even though it looked very obviously like it was in a museum and right. everybody who saw it even months earlier when it was still a little blurry, was like, that looks like a mummy in a museum, which is, of course, exactly what it turned out to be. And didn't there actually turn out to be a little a little sign someplace? Yeah. Yes. On the edge of yeah. one of the pictures yeah. they, saying and, that's what it was? And, yeah. they, it, it, and even though there had been allegedly efforts, including with all these top people to deblur it for years, uh, a group of both skeptics and ufologists not involved with this deblurred it within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked, about, we talked about that some... Uh, right. On that, but um, so, so, so a number of the same people got involved in this, but it's a very complicated, and I don't want to get into all of it. Partly because some of the resources available to me are no longer available. I was actually following a thread on a particular internet forum that has since disappeared after it 
got declared a hoax by the forum uh, administrators. Um, even though they have a hoaxes forum, which you can probably figure out which one I'm talking about. But also, there's a good article that sort of summarizes a lot of this. And so I, I would much rather talk about some specific, or not specific, but some angles that we're interested in. So go ahead and read the article in The Atlantic, Atlantic.com. Uh, obviously, it's be in the show notes. The racism behind alien mummy hoaxes. And this is by Christopher Haney, H-E-A-N-E-Y, uh, published on August 1st of this year with the subtitle, Pre-Columbian bodies are once again being used as evidence for extraterrestrial life. And this article does a lot of what I think I would cover. And so rather than just retell you the story, you can go look at it. We can give you our thoughts. Um, there are some details that aren't there. But basically, um, in last fall, that claw showed up. And then what appears to be from the same source, and there are a couple of people named in the article that appear to be involved in this. One is an alleged tomb robber named Mario. That is a, a pseudonym, which sounds a lot like our Fiji mermaid we were just talking about. Um, and then there is another individual who is named in the article. And you can go look this up. But if you follow his Twitter name and other things of him, it becomes clear that he is also involved in a UFO religious group called Alpha E Omega, which is a, a big sort of re- like partially Christian themed, partially not. Or maybe it is. It's hard to tell uh, from outside UFO group in, in Peru. And so this YouTuber, this, this Twitter, this person is the source of the information on this big hand. And then he starts apparently, and again, the, the links in here, some of which you'll have to read Spanish or have to use Google Translate to use. Um, but the, the ones that are translatable are actually pretty translatable with Google. Um, then little mummies started to show up, like little, little, like a couple of feet, I think at most. And they were kind of like the PG mur- They are full body mummies. But they're like two feet tall. So they're, okay, so they're and, like little teeny tiny bubbies. Yeah, and like the like what a skeptic would say about the Fiji mermaid, they appear to be constructed out of parts. They are a chimera. Um, they are supposed to sort of look like humanoid little gray alien types with elongated heads, but they they look they, they frankly look like they're made of sticks. Like they kind of do, but there do appear to be bones if you look at X-rays. Because they're having some X-rays again. You can follow some of these these various things but what caught all the attention was the mummy named maria which i'm going to spoil it right now genetics turned out was a 100 percent human and b male but i digress <laughs> uh, um but uh this very some a lot of skeptics and this kind of annoyed the hell out of me a lot of skeptics were like well is it constructed is it like if, if anybody who knows any anthropology takes a look at it media is like no that's clearly especially if you know any archaeology of, of South America, that is clearly from a mummy bundle. Like, that is clearly a, a human skeleton, and it's the kind you find in the Nazca area and the Paracas culture in southern Peru. You find them elsewhere, but that's where they're most famous. I mean, uh, uh, Ule, uh, you know, used to dig these things up. I, I think Ule did that. Uh, yes, in the Paracas culture in the uh, 100 years ago and plus. And, you know, I, I knew exactly what it was as soon as I saw it, with the exception that one, it's covered in this weird white grayish, it looks like plaster uh, analysis, supposedly say it's clay. It could be a clay. Either way, you don't see that, but it makes it look gray. And secondly, uh, the face looks weird. And other people who have looked at photos of and taken a lot of time suggest that the faces have had 
sort of clay and plaster kind of made to make them look a little more like a typical gray alien. They do have elongated skulls, like many burials in southern Peru are known to do, many from this culture, the, the Nazca and the Paracas cultures. And they have three fingers and three toes that look really long. And if you follow a number of the links to Peruvian and other specialists that have looked at this, it is very obvious, and then there's x-rays that have appeared, that if you were to basically take off two fingers, and not just the fingers, but you get into uh, the hand and take off a few more bones, they, that's exactly what they would look like. Mm-hmm. And they otherwise make no sense. So in other words, the remaining fingers are clearly human fingers, the remaining toes are clearly human toes, and they look long and weird because um, they've basically mutilated them and they've cut off the sides and then it appears skeptics are saying they've coated these things in this plaster or clay or whatever and there's there are two that are human that are not melanges there's the full-size maria and then another one appeared that was a small child and there was a red mark on the forehead and that is typical of pre-hispanic peruvian burial. okay so i i have to ask this question now because i'm concerned they desecrated uh human remains that is that is the accusation yep by by pretty much every professional archaeologist anthropologist that is not involved with the project that has looked at them um which is why i think this uh i was uh, this did not blow up the way certain other these cases have because a number of people that were initially supportive of this have walked away, I think because they are somewhat concerned about what the blowback might be. Because that is, that's that's kicking it up a notch. That's escalating quite quickly. Yeah, um, that's, uh... You know, if you're going, and the other thing is they, some of the supporters of this are touting the radiocarbon dates and like, these are clearly old. Yeah, yeah they are. Which then gets you into heritage law right. and criminal prosecution for looting of human remains that could be 1400 years old and again um i'm working off of what they've published they've put out these things several of the people that were initially supportive when dna came back and said this was human and male were that's when they dropped off um and again you can find all this in the in the in the atlantic article and if you just kick around and look around we can we can provide some links but um yeah this has not taken off now part of it was there is a I'm not going to name it, but there's a streaming service, kind of like a Netflixy sort of thing, that uh, um, uh, is focused on new age, spiritual, paranormal, conspiratorial things, and has some original programming and some, you know, like yeah, like Netflix, some original programming and some not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became a significant sponsor of this, and there's been a lot of infighting. And I, again, I don't want to get into it because it becomes sort of a popcorn show. It's like fascinating and all, but not that fascinating um this is in a larger context of there being a lot of interest in this group and you can watch your ancient aliens but they did a whole show on that which i don't want to get into but there are some interesting things including who was on that episode uh and what occurred but um involving skulls from that region and various claims that they are either genetically not human or if they're genetically human, that they're genetically not South American and usually Middle Eastern or European. And you can start to read agendas into that. Right. Um, but there is a longer history of this. And it's starting to remind me of, and we've talked about this before, um, there has been a lot of analysis, well, not a lot, but some analysis of how in the 1990s, 
there became sort of a group of names you would keep hearing again and again associated with the Giza Plateau in Egypt. Something similar seems to be happening in southern Peru, that there are these names that keep popping up, although a lot of them eventually got off of this project when it started to just not look good. Um, and, you know, good for them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there, there, there does this, that's basically where this case is. We may hear more from it, but it doesn't seem to have exploded in the way that I think some people initially thought it might, but yeah, no, as, uh, as Ken, I think was, was saying, no humans were harmed in the forming of <laughs> Fiji mermaids. Yeah, so no, might yeah. have been. Yes. Exactly, and, exactly. And everybody involved were basically consenting buyers and sellers, and that is not quite the situation no. from what it looks like here. Now, again, people who are involved or, or partisans for this will say this, that, or the other, but this appears, almost every expert who's looked at this says, these appear to be ancient human remains that have been mutilated and modified to look inhuman and to support a... a agenda that is not in accordance with mainstream science but is in accordance with alternative archaeological ideas whether you agree with barnum or not i think his argument that hey listen folks this is for entertainment purposes certainly seems a lot more reasonable than i don't think nothing about the story that jeb just told is entertaining this this the the agenda here is seems to be a whole lot darker than well I would say that for for some people, they absolutely buy into it, and they think that you know that there are so there's about three groups, and then I, and well, Sarah, you I heard you asking a question. I have a thing that, and as you know, I launch. So once I launch, it's hard to pull back. Not to yeah. say anything about the news, but um, what were you going to ask? I was going to ask: Aren't at least some of the people involved with the the Nazca mummies also the same people that were involved with the fairy? skeleton or fairy mummy thing that was found um, a while back that see that's where it gets this is why I, this is one of the reasons i am being you can again look at the atlantic article yeah I, and we'll we will totally link to that in, in the show notes yeah but, but one of the reasons i'm being slippery is not just because any number of reasons but part of it frankly is it's hard to say exactly who is where there are people who have made denunciations who initially were a little more sympathetic to this and what involvement means. So for example, I mentioned Jaime Masson. He does not appear to have been initially involved. Like, I don't think he made them. Uh, I think somebody else made them, but he then got involved, but then, and that angered other people. So there's been sort of this infighting, but at what point do we talk about what involvement means? But he was sort of circling that too. Mm-hmm. And other people. So that's what I'm getting at. Like the, when I say there's this Giza plateau style, a sort of mini college of these people kind of, cottage industry in and out in and out yeah kind of sorta there's the metapec creature which was a monkey if i remember correctly there was another uh ufologist or ufo person that got involved with a paracus mummy which turned out to be a little like a, a neonate or a fetus or something um those people are not necessarily tied in here but the concept is similar and some people are sort of in the same it gets very murky it gets yeah, very, very murky. Maybe that's why this didn't blow up so much. I mean, aside from hopefully the human remains, um, maybe it's because these people who are involved have been tied to so many ob- other obvious frauds that they're just kind of running out of credibility at this point. I, I, I do wonder. I mean, some of them, if you if you look them up, the like 
if you're if the thing you're most famous for after 2015 is the Roswell slot. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a legitimate case. Some of them are not. Some of them are unknowns, but some of them, mainstream reporters, they're like, "Oh, who is?" The-? Yeah, no, no, we're not going to do this. I just read, I just <laughs> so, read a thing. But what I was going to I was going to answer your question, Ken, with the the. I think for some people it is entertainment. For some people, it's a diehard belief, and it may be a specific belief. For others, they may not have a specific belief in anything particularly involving Peruvian anything, mm-hmm. but it, they're like, there's a global conspiracy, there's disclosure coming, you know, the, the evil the evil government entities and the evil breakaway civilization, they can only keep the truth gone for so long, an old-time 1990s punk rocker is going to release the, the news, or uh, uh, the Tom DeLonge thing, I don't know if you know what that is, uh, from um, Blink-182, if I remember right, right. Yeah. Uh, or... Or this person's going to, or that person's going. And of course, these things seem to happen six months from now, and they've been happening since the beginning of UFOs. But um, so one, there's that. So like, even if they don't necessarily believe in a particular thing, it's one more thing that might break it all open. And if this one falls apart, there'll be another down the road. Right. And you could call that entertainment. But I think even some people, quite a few people, it becomes well, wouldn't that be cool? And I kind of believe in something, and I don't believe in some things, and that'd be kind of cool. That does start to fall close to entertainment because it's not involving a lot of investment and it becomes sort of like a thing you consume. And I suspect some people looking at the Fiji mermaid felt the same way. Right. All right. Well, well, again, you you mentioned the the, uh, campfire ghost stories where I don't know if it's true or not, but it sure as hell is fun to think about. And intriguing and interesting. It makes you think i mean how many times have we said something like it's a good story but you know yeah, yeah. Well, and, so and no parallel one is the the star child as well yeah that, the star star child now that there's no evidence that that was modified no not at all but it was it was touted as evidence of an alien human hybrid or an right. alien or something like right. that depending on which version of Lloyd pie or other story and that's right. not the only one and again and there has been a lot of interest in the last few years with elongated skulls in Peru and elsewhere, but especially Peru. And there's a longer story, again, with sort of shady elements here. Um, and some people trying to tie it into extraterrestrials. And a lot, though, and frankly, this seems to be increasing much bigger in many ways, although it doesn't travel as well in the mainstream, um, with the Nephilim, with giants. Because there is an ideology about the idea of giants returning as part of the end times battle in certain, not the most mainstream, but again, probably more common than you think, um, places on the religious spectrum. You know, I think we should maybe uh, consider doing an episode on uh, the whole practice of the elongated skulls and how that's being reinterpreted by the fringe. I would. I think it's a great idea. I do think if we did that, we should have somebody who would definitely. You know, I, we would want to get a, a osteologist um, yes, of sure. some kind, oh, yeah. biologist, and I, 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 can, I can think of some actually, and so we'll talk about that. But. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is something that has always been there. People have always found them interesting, and people have tried to make them into sort of non-human people. Right, yeah, it's a reoccurring theme with them. But it has really picked up, one, in the era of clickbait sort of social media ecosphere. Uh, but secondly, I think in no small part because of this, I don't know where the idea that Nephilim had coneheads came from, but it, that now has really caught on with quite a few people. 
And it shows up. It shows up in some sci-fi too, doesn't it? Where the, oh, yeah. the aliens have these elongated. I mean, even in in the, the original the aliens, and I guess the, the ones after that, the they they do have these elongated skulls. Well, and maybe there's that 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 inspires that. Well, I mean, because they look sort of well for aliens. Yes, so aliens. It makes okay. You don't see me air quoting, but I'm <laughs> air quoting that okay. it makes sense. Because the idea of aliens that we generally have in a lot of Western and now with the expansion of that societies is that um, they should have big giant heads but otherwise look like us right. um, and have you know little spindly bodies and big heads. And this, mm-hmm. there's a long history behind that we're not going to get into. And that doesn't make per se sense for the Nephilim from scripture or even later folkloric tradition uh, after scripture. But um, – and I guess that's sort of my final note on this – Of course, uh, Jason Colavito and others have pointed out repeatedly that there is a strong relationship, and and the ancient aliens people do it too, between ideas of Nephilim, giants, and ancient aliens. And so it seems to have, like we've talked about so much, cross-pollinated back to to that. But that is something we clearly cannot get into today. And again, go look at the Atlantic article – we may link some other things. I talked about this in a little more detail on Sharon Hill's, I think, episode 22 of 15 Credibility Street. And we'll, link and we'll have some other too. things. Yeah, we'll, we'll link a number of things. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the story there. Ken, quick final Excellent. thoughts? Uh, I mean, th- this was this was great fun. I love talking about P.T. Barnum. We will also link you to the, the P.T. Barnum, the website of the museum. There's a virtual museum Ooh. put up by those folks as well. So... So even you know, and we'll keep plugging. Hopefully, at some point, uh, we'll be able to. They'll be able to reopen that museum. But uh, I have no idea what P.T. Barnum, how he would react to some of the the stuff we've talked about in the last part of this of this this podcast. But it's there's another interesting thing. I suspect he would have done it better. <laughs> well, yes, yes. He was. He was. He Considering was. what he could have used as materials for some of his hoaxes, the fact that he didn't use human remains, I think, says a lot. Well, we also just did recently the Ishimaya episode, so this is there's true. yeah. This is so, true. but Fair but yeah, Kamiras, the, the the museum, the, the the Barnum Museum actually has a full scale skeleton of a centaur, and it's really nicely done. It's a yeah. it's a piece of art, obviously. Yeah. But it's it is gorgeous and it's 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 mounted behind a glass case and it looks for all the world like a centaur a person a horse person very, which therefore cool. which which therefore makes them real right that, well there it is it's in a museum for guys right yeah. well guys thanks for coming on the show Great I show, appreciate thank it you. and this has been a fun topic so all right all right talk to you all later absolutely bye Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. 
Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? (sighs) Get pet essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply.